0: Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is a podcast about comics, where comics and politics meet. And this is your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Twitter's Elana Brooklyn. Joining me is one of my favorite comic writers currently working. It is Kieran Gillen. He first came to attention as a comic creator in 2006 Phonogram with Jamie McKelvey. You guys probably know it's like one of my absolute favorite comics. Jamie and he formed a gestalt monster, which rampaged against the next 15 years of comics, culminating with the critical and smash hit Wicked plus the Divine, which is everybody's favorite ever comic. When not with Jamie, he has co-created such books as Die, The Ludocrats, Once in Future, 3, Uber, and many more. When not making his own worlds, he has worked on Marvel Comics' biggest books, such as Uncanny X-Men, Young Avengers, Thor, Iron Man, Star Wars Eternals, and Darth Vader, where he co-created Dr. Afra. His hobbies include pop culture, talking about pop culture, redefining what pop culture means in any given context and putting off updating his bio as long as possible. Welcome back, Kieran.
1: It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you about some new work you've had, as well as some stuff that's been out for a while, but that we just never had a chance to talk about. Um, So I want to kick off by talking about The Eternals. It's funny, like when The Eternals movie was announced, it got one of those responses from the public where the comic's press was sort of saying like, well, nobody cares about the eternals, so at least we won't have to complain about people uh changing it or like stuff from fans. And I'm like, look, fans who complain, or so-called fans who complain about people making things more diverse should fuck off. But don't say that no one cares about the eternals. It's like a Jack Kirby thing. So I, I was curious, like well, yeah, what was your alignment or interest in the series before getting started on it?
1: Eternals was not actually something I'd read in depth uh before doing it as in like it, that was all part of my research as in um it's one of the books which i mainly understood through reflected and its impacts in the marvel universe this is one of the things i got from the eternals is in um how many really important rifts to the larger marvel cosmology is in there you know what i mean like uh, the celestials are such a, a power cord of, of a visual <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like, if I look at my own thing, my, I think my own first exposure to the like any of the Eternals' cosmology would have been, like, uh, Infinity Gauntlet, I think, when I when I was reading that. And I was in that oh, area, yeah. I wasn't really reading many comics. But the kind of, like, who that, who on earth are those people at the back? Um, <laughs> and then you sort of know like, through characters like Cersei. I mean, Cersei's somebody I've always particularly liked. But Eternals is very much, like, one I was like, I don't know that much about the Eternals. Like, I'd read, like... Um, I've read The Game and uh, Ramita Jr. Right. And any, when it came out. So like I knew that much. But it's like a Kirby work I only know for the visuals rather than the specifics execution. And in some ways, I think my actual idea of what the Eternals were was very much born about people's general conversational idea about the Eternals. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, general geek-accepted wisdom, which is always a dangerous thing to look at unquestioned. So at least part <laughs> of the reason why I did it was to dig into it, as in, like, Kirby's a creator I have enormous respect for. Uh, and having a chance to do a deep dive into the work and see really what he was doing with it and seeing, you know, how I can... um, It's very tricky if i the right word. How I can actually do something which I feel like extends from the core of what Kirby was doing then.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously like a hardcore Kirby person and this totally worked for me. I am um, not a big fan of all of the appearances that the Eternals have made under the direction of others and I... I am really excited to see this because, uh, well, I mean, obviously, like, I read whatever you're doing, but, like, pretty much. But, like, it was also that I, I felt like I hadn't seen work that was as closely tied to Kirby coming from you yet, and I was curious as to what it would be. Although you did – you've had Celestials and things that you've made before, like, I think you're, some of your stuff on X-Men.
1: Yeah, it's so telling. I mean, like, I feel quite bad what I did to the Dreaming Celestial. Isn't it kind of like I, – I, in one of my – this was in one of my pitches, I – or sort of rather my eternal documents, I noticed, like, after the um, after the, the game in Romita Jr. Mini with the Dreaming Celestial, basically, the X-Men office broke the Dreaming Celestial apart for parts, basically as <laughs> a stolen car, across, you know, literally across the entire <laughs> noughties. We, we ripped that thing completely bare. Um, so <laughs> there is a bit that. So as I was said earlier, so, you know, there's so much about the the charge, as in that it feels like one of those very pure Marvel Universe comics. And for me, it was like one of the ironies that... um they Never quite had been integrated in a way which stuck to the Marvel universe, yep. and that's the yep. that was to me the, the primary j- job of it. You know, I okay, what on earth makes the Eternal special for an idea that, um, I mean, obviously, it's very easy to know what makes the Eternal special as their own thing, but you, when the second you add it to the Marvel universe, it changes. You know, the core cool mythology of the Eternals is they are basically super, born of the 1970s sort of ideas that gods were aliens, these are alien. Alien-created beings who are mistaken by early humanity as gods. So that's that's the story. Except that doesn't quite stick as well in the Marvel Universe when you actually have gods like Hercules and Thor and whoever. You know what I mean? It, it, it mm-hmm. fundamentally dilutes them. And some lots of writers have tried to sort of, um you know, force, force it into the square hole. And that yeah, yeah, some of the stories are based on Eternals and some of them aren't. And there's some kind of mistaken identity, but it lacks the, that pure vision. Um, And also, like, this, intellectually, it doesn't always... Like, the Eternals, like, they're this pure burst of Kirby. And there's not really, like, a classical Marvel Universe stuff. Like, the idea that there's a down... Like, heroes always like feet of clay. There's not much feet of clay in the Eternals. I mean, one of the things I I really do like about Kirby is he creates this idea of, you know, these two, three species, but really two. And these ones are the good ones, these were the bad ones and then the second he does that he immediately realizes this is nonsense i've got to start deconstructing this you know mm-hmm. so you get the heroic eternals you get like uh, the eternals like K- karak who's a name i can never pronounce and the reject <laughs> you know the idea of appearance and reality you know so he's he's automatically deconstructing what these ideas mean anyway so um that's sort of the way i end up sort of following i mean like the, the some of the what i'm doing about the eternals is even obvious in this first issue as in i'm leaning into the weirdness of them i'm leaning into the oh they're unchanging and that's a bit creepy and they're you know and i've said in many interviews i thought they're not really gods they're angels because you know they're eternal beings created by um you know space gods so slice jewels are the gods in this metaphor the eternals are beings created by gods for a task oh they're angels you know especially Mm because dig more into angel doctrine you get into ideas like maybe angels don't have free will and that's interesting and creepy as somebody, you know, I'm, I tend to lean existentialist in my own philosophy. So the idea of creating a being who is curtailed in such a uh, a, a fundamental way is really interesting. Because that's one of the other themes in a lot of my work is like, what is the capacity for humanity to change? Like, or especially for people to change? Can we get better? Yeah, um, and, the you know, and the fear that, you know, we can't, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so it's like that, that hope and fear aspect is always very key for me, the
0: Eternals. Um, I love it. Yeah. I mean, and even from your first handling of the Eternals when you mentioning like X-Men stripping the Dreamy Celestial for spare parts is one, like the most human response to something like that and also works on a metaphorical level, right? (laughs) It
1: really does, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, like, it's like, it's one of the things about the Celestials. This I put in the notes is the Celestials have got too big for the Eternals. It's a bit bit like, I don't know, imagine if Dr. Octopus got took away from Spider-Man. You know, like the Celestials mm. are so part of so many different Marvel cosmic stories. They're not really just the Eternals' antagonist is not the right word, but you know, they're not part. They're not just part of the Eternals cast. It's just where they're from. Um, they're like the they're Ross to the Supremes of the Eternals in terms of the Marvel universe.
0: <laughs> uh, oh my god, that's
1: the, that's the most me metaphor I think in a long time.
0: <laughs> yes, that's an award.
1: Yeah, but as as such, of course, means that like. I can't lean on the, the essentials because they have the possibility of being taken out of my hands. You know what I mean? Or like, they're not as fundamentally as connected to the Eternals despite being their creators. So a lot of my stuff is okay. I want to give Eternals stuff which is, is theirs and theirs alone. You know? Stuff that, you know, it's harder to strip for parts because it's new. Or at least it's new as in important. I mean, the main obviously the, the Deviants. So I kind of like, the line I use is like, Buffy, the, imagine a species of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is dealing with, this this gremlin species who occasionally spits out monsters i mean I, i've mm. sort of moved the deviants away from being these purely monstrous creatures because let's be honest kirby didn't write them like that
0: yes um, thank you
1: yeah uh <laughs> you know he wrote this and it's like you know if these people are monsters then you immediately meet them and they're not <laughs> you know there's, there's clearly some violent people there but it's like there's very if you look at like any sort of country on earth it's not like it's not like the mongol hordes have always you know the mongol horde conquered the world for six thousand years you know they've, they've been different sort you know, the mongol people have been very different things at different times you know and if you that's not the best metaphor but you know what i mean it's in the idea that deviants mm-hmm. have o- only ever been one thing and they are always that that is completely against especially what i think is built into the deviants that they are the changing people you know and the idea of what the de- deviants are the absolute opposite of um uh the eternals and it gets really interesting the or the chaos dynamic so i sort of pushed the, the t- like on average deviants are just kind of normalish, you know they're like people they're a bit needy whatever and then they deviant they deviate and that's kind of the idea i use of excess deviation is the way the eternals would put it um mm-hmm. as in when they start you know it's, it's a classic they're they're fr- their, un- their freedom reaches the point where they start stepping on other people's feet by often, you know, eating them. <laughs> yes,
0: I, I think this is my favorite take of the deviants. Like, you know, like since the original material, oh, their species periodically has individuals who are a little crazy and violent. Quote: A deviant would likely mention to you that you spit out serial killers. Like, thank you. <laughs>
1: yes, that's that's very. I mean, that's absolutely one of those kind of. Um, this is stuff I want to make clear because it's the stuff which I think if it's if it's unexamined in the Eternals becomes problematic very rapidly. And as I said earlier, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, Kirby realised that instantly. and <laughs> immediately yeah. starts, uh, starts doing it. And I very much want to continue that. Um, I mean, the thing about, it's also a flip as well. The Etern- I was very into the idea of the Eternals. I mean, this is obviously there with Polaris and Olympia. Um, but I was very into the, the idea of the factualization of Eternals. The idea that the Eternals aren't like Kokoa or anything, something like that. They're not like one people. They are very much a society. And in some way, and a society which does not agree with it themselves any more than any society does. Um, mm-hmm. And in many ways, Eternals are quite often their own antagonists. In that, if you look at their history, like in, in terms of, if you look at that, the the history of of like how it goes back in the Marvel universe, and even in just in the Kirby uh, work, that um, that you know most of the major Eternal struggles have been against other Eternals. You've got the Uran, you know what I call the Uranian uh, heresy. What we have is the Titanos schism. I've sort of renamed some stuff. Um, we're not, I've given conflicts names. One of the things I've sort mm-hmm. of realized recently is um, part of Eternals is about me trying to turn continuity into mythology. Um, and the idea of like okay. all these work by all these people, I mean, I'm going to sit back, look at it, see the shapes, and okay, how can I turn to this something to something that feels as coherent as Tolkien? You know, the idea that, you know, let's make, okay, Uranos is our Morgoth figure um you know we could you know we follow the, the people of the eternals across a million years and make that feel like a, a myth so even people who because i think people buy continuity is a it's it's not that like people who really love the continuity I, I hope they'll be satisfied with what we're doing because it's very clear that i'm thinking about what's there at the same time people who don't know continuity are quite intimidated but they people love mythology the idea that there's more to the more to this universe than this on the page, that there's more stuff to discover to be revealed and explored whilst, you know, still being accessible with what we're doing. And that's that's something I think is really uh, appealing for me as a as a reader. So that's what I was trying to bring to the page on Eternals.
0: Yeah, I definitely think this comic is something that people who haven't read anything with the Eternals in it before could read and understand. I think, you know, if people don't even read Marvel, I'm not sure if I can assess the accessibility, but I know I can tell that people who don't no, the Eternals, like you introduce this very well and clearly. As much as I do suggest people check the Kirby, like it is not required.
1: Mm. No, I agree. I, I would. Uh, people ask me, do they need to read before? And I say, no, it's a number one. Yeah. Just, you know, jump in. That's the point of a number one. But like, if you're going to read anything, read the Kirby pos- uh, and read the game. And They're the two, I think, things I think influence the book most. Mm-hmm. But like, as I said, I'm taking from a lot of other places as well. And plus, I think the longer the run goes on, the more likely I'll take from everyone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, one of the things that I I don't know for sure if this is happening, but fingers crossed, is this is something that occurred to me only as I began reading this issue, your your number one issue with Eternals, was, oh my God, I really want to read Kieran writing Crow. Like, that's a thing I need.
1: (laughs) Crow is a lot of fun. uh, um, It must be, he's not in the first arc, but he's on the list of people who are important. You know, like, this is one mm -hmm. of the things about Eternals, is I'm not rushing, because there's so many. This is kind of like, I must this is, in some ways, the trap Kirby fell into. <laughs> in that Eternals in the 17 issues plus a special, um, is that right? Um, 19 issues. Ah, right. Cool. Close. The um, yes. As if he he's still inventing new, introducing new characters all the way through it. There's no end to yeah. these Eternals, and he's you know he embraces that. And in some ways, I'm like, okay. Whilst I'm trying to tell a quite contained story in this larger element, I clearly have a lot of Eternals, and I'm not just going to cram someone in for no points. And equally if i are a major character, I want to give him a good intro. It's like mm-hmm. when Crow turns up, I want people to go, it's Crow. <laughs> or like, uh, <laughs> well, you know, rather than just him wandering the
0: back of the scene, I guess. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And for those of you who have no idea who the fuck Crow is, he's one of the deviants who is um, very intellectual and very sardonic. And uh, at least like, this is my, my, this is, these are the qualities that maybe be like, I want, and he's, you know, he's, he's a, an antagonist who's like not evil. He's just like comes as a person who comes into conflict sometimes with the celestials, but is certainly he's just he's very compelling, and um, his particular sense of dry humor is something I want Karen writing. So yeah.
1: it's fun. Like it's um, also he's in a perpetual on-off relationship with Fina, which is the classic uh, Romeo and Juliet of the uh, Eternals um Yeah. So he's he's mentioned it. I must say he's mentioned in the first arc. I, I will definitely say that.
0: <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm fine with waiting, but yeah, I'm excited that we'll be getting there. You've done some really cool work, you know, working with the characters that we've seen so far. Um, I, I I like the idea of bringing Stripe Sprite back as as a girl, for example, and a good, very natural introduction of, of you know how a character might change gender over time.
1: Thank you. It's definitely that like kind of. um It's sort of obviously you know I'm a. Uh, this is in line with what the characters' genders are in the movie. And it's one of those things where I just couldn't see a good reason not to. You know what I mean? These are, Especially because mm-hmm. I'm leaning into that the Eternals aren't people. And this is one of the things that, you know, rather, well, the Eternals aren't humans. It, you know, we can pick apart the meaning of the word people if we want. But, you know, they are explicitly something unlike us. So it allows us to sort of approach different ideas of identity. And, you know, the Eternals were never, ever like a human, male or female or any racial you just you know they only ever had the appearance because they were never they were you know born of the humanic species in that way i guess so that's what i want you know i couldn't see any reason to alienate newcomers and equally it just seems such a cool science fiction bit of the eternals um you know and it was i think I, if it wasn't a movie would i have done that stuff and part of me thinks yeah probably <laughs> you know because <laughs> you know that kind mm-hmm. of the idea that the the eternals are Playing or, or you know, or taking these different things on in different periods. That that is quite an interesting idea in and of itself. Oh, before mm-hmm. we moved on from the deviants, there's there's something I wanted to mention. The um, issue, like issue three is the deviant issue where we sort of introduce that what's going on in L- uh, Lemuria. Um, one of the things I've done there is I've, I've written a, a I've written a deviant name generator. Uh, <laughs> I've actually coded it. So I took all the uh, in canon deviant names and broke them into phenomes. And added some subtitles and other ways to do it. And you just press the button, it generates a thousand eternal sorry, a thousand deviant names. Uh, and I need to tweak oh. it a bit more before we get issue three goes to press. But I want to make it big enough that we can get and also it never generates a repeated name or stuff like that. So I want to wow. almost generate the entire number of deviants on Earth and give them all a name. um uh, <laughs> it's that kind of um, you know, uh that is that says a lot about the way that I'm approaching eternals. There's you know, there's this sort of Elements that I got a bit, which I've kind of grown from doing Die, as in I believe that I try to want to put extra, um, from shapes, so I always say, little bit weird efforts above and beyond what's on the page, just to kind of like, it's, it's quite, cause you can say what you like about Tolkien, cause you know, I'm not necessarily the biggest, I mean, I'm a huge Tolkien fan, but I'm, I certainly have a huge problems with the work. But there's this in the text
0: critically, like you're supposed to.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, I think he, I've got one of my friends, uh, she's a big Tolkien scholar, and her take of the reason why he can never quite finish Silmarillion is he had recognized the problem of orcs. And you know, mm. <laughs> in this like, like you know, any there's no way, you know, oops, there's there's problems here. Um oh, but what we're saying is in terms of an intellectual achievement, there's a weight to Middle Earth that is simply not as true in many other fantasy worlds, because he'd done the work. You know what I mean? Like mm. and this is a, what I kind of try to do with dying and what I'm trying to do with Eternals is the idea that there is a lot of work around here. And that makes people kind of like, the fancy world has a, has a solidity and weight, which is quite uh, appealing and is, has its own kind of merits. Um, and this is me pushing back against, because I think in the last 20 years, there's been the, the accepted wisdom in writing is world building is not not an end, you know, it's something to be avoided. And there's, no, you know, world building's something that gets in the way. And I'm sort of playing with the, um, may, maybe world building's Okay. Maybe, you know, uh, it's, it's a problem when it gets in the way and it becomes just stuff on the page, but maybe will-being we'll actually does something uh, to the actual solidity of the work. And it feels like me, I don't know, it's like a punk kid, I've, I, me finally trying out Led Zeppelin. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? As in, I haven't allowed myself to listen to Led Zeppelin. Yeah. I,
0: I, especially in context of Eternals, this, that makes a lot of sense too. I, I, I'm i really loving it. And um, it's also kind of makes for, an. It, it's cool to have this coming out at the same time as... The Krakoa era of X Men, because there are things that are happening here that are basically offering a completely different take on some of the ideas and notions that are brought there, um, and it stands on its own, obviously. But I loved, I love like looking at that those differences. Mm. You're saying it it's isn't... different. There's different. Con- there's different cultures uh, within the Eternals in conflict right now, and. And their relationship to humanity is obviously completely different.
1: It's interesting. It's like, um, there's so many elements of Kokoa which are quote unquote similar to the Eternals, you know, at the same time, mm-hmm. Kokoa is a new society, which is the entire point. It's a book about like, how can we make a, a mutant, you know, can we, how can we make, make a nation from scratch? The problem of doing that. Uh, What's Eternals is very much a mature society. It's a stagnant society. And that's kind of the, that's implicit in the nature of a, the word eternal. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And it, it's just, it's like, Part of me, it, I look at my thinking of uh, about Eternals. It's about how my own um, my own fears for like liberal democracy. I don't mean in a cool revolutionary way. I mean in a kind of <laughs> it burning down way. <laughs> you know what I mean? As in like, oh yeah, like this is as in Calcutta. You know how much is this, can a kind of system change after a certain point. And like, how much does the, the ethics of a system? You know, I mean, all, all those sort of questions. And it's kind of with the Eternals, you can sort of tie it, turn up the volume a lot. Like, is, I said, how unjust is the Eternal system, and can they do anything about it? And that seems like a, a really. Like I said, sorry to return to your actual question. It's like it is literally the flip of Krakoa in terms of like that's about making something new, and this is like you know you've got something that's very very old. What can you do with that?
0: Yeah, I I, I love that focus. It's really great. Um, I, I also think like there's there's also something of from the initial creation idea of the Eternals that I, I think is very was very c- culturally specific at the time it was created, and that is now a notion that we are like have a more complex relationship to, which was, you know, this is partially inspired by chariots of the the mm. chariots of the gods ideas where like oh, okay, you know, what if the pyramids are actually made by aliens? What if these the, zo- the um, ziggurats are made by aliens? Which, you know, at first as a reader, you're like, oh, that's a cool idea. And then secondly, you're like, wait, are we saying that these great works made by people of color couldn't possibly be made by people of color and must be made by aliens? That sounds problematic. Uh, so I- I'm-, I'm definitely interested in like, you know, it's, it's a – it. it- I'm definitely interested in like you know thinking about how you have specific and you've you've mapped them this way this is exactly you know how the earlier works have been, which is like you have the um, part of the Eternals society is like based out of Mesoamerica and Central America, and like when you first are looking at um, the initial designs around like characters you know who are coming out right then, like Ajax, you're like, okay, this guy was clearly carved into a wall by by mayans like that's where this design comes from i love that kirby is bringing these um these looks and styles into the comic um but then it's also like yeah but like what are we giving credit to aliens that's like actually work by humans
1: yeah i mean you you uh, you absolutely echo my thoughts and it's definitely one of the um it's one of the many tricky things you have to unpack with a book i guess and work out ways to do it and like i mean i'm um and you have to sort of see by the ways i step away from stuff it's like um you know like even like where, where i've put a you know we've been to olympia we've been to the exclusion we've been to titanos but you know i put them in pocket dimensions you know i, I explicitly separate them i don't imply they're building anything on the surface i'm talking about lack of interaction with the world there's a you know or mm-hmm. other, there's a lack of has that been talked about properly yet so i'm just trying to think about the spoiler there's definitely Oh, that comes soon enough. But, you know, there is a kind of idea of the Eternals as in, no, they're not meant to rule the Earth. You know, that's a kind of a, that's, if they did, you know, that's, a, if they don't think the, if they don't think the deviants should do it, they don't think they should do it either. Um, and you may notice the one thing that isn't in the list of, uh, prime directors for Eternals on the first page is protect humans. It's, uh, protect the machine. And it's very, this is one of my favorite things Eternals is just people getting into philosophical arguments over what protect the machine means. Cause it's, a. Uh, this is, source. Okay. I could talk about this. Why not? It's like, <laughs> that's the, the, uranus heresy. That's the original Morgothian Satan element in that, yeah, we should just wipe out everyone else on the planet and rule it. You know, the, uh, <laughs> uh, the safest way to rule the machine if it's the only thing is eternals and no deviants and no proto humans and none of that. Um, and that's such a dangerous idea. That's the reason why he's in the exclusion forever. And then you've got these, i got someone like a druid who's, talk about Clara's why I love writing. He is awful. <laughs> um he's so awful but he's such a there's something really appealing about him in that awful way um that uh i mean i use, I use the phrase soft euronites you know people with Uranite beliefs but they're kind of like they're, they're deliberately hiding them a little and you can sort of right. you can easily map that onto um like modern politics that's at least kind of what i was want to do with the tunnels and the idea of like okay what did kronos really believe let's let's try to make that an actual philosophy you know at least that's defensible like there's a bit in one of the future issues where I'm, I'm going to have a flow chart of, of arguments people made in a political <gasps> debate.
0: You know, oh. like, as
1: in like this, they said, th- it's like basically like Eternals, okay, it's not I'm going to say this and somebody on Twitter will take this seriously. It's like Eternals Twitter. But what I just mean is like, you know, that kind of, those arguments, people, they say this, then they say this. And it kind of, this is one reason I don't go on Twitter as much, but it's, it's like watching people going through martial arts stances. You know, as in like, yes, I can see this attack and this is countered by this, which is countered by this. You know, in that that chain, and I'd be doing an eternal version of that kind of philosophical argument. is a lot. You know, that's a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> that's that's my idea of a good time. Um, so I'm really excited when that when that happens. Um, and, and, and I'm interested, like, in how you're using the sort of data pages type structures in this, which is you've been doing this in your work for a long time. This is not like a new. A new thing like you've always had a sort of metatextual combination of outside documents and written kinds of communications like even as far back as phonogram um so it's sort of it's I, I like how that got used in uh the eternals also for sort of an interesting sort of storytelling effect
1: thank you i mean i say i just saw on your on graphics policy and uh, uh the phonogram signals club issue six which is the fanzine issue has just, an article just went live today uh, yeah. which is which is a really good, you know an early example of me doing that it's magic it's quite fun because obviously like everyone says uh it's post hickman and you know without a doubt this is you know one of the connective tissues between john and my work and i think i would have done more of it if i was a designer john's great strength is that he's always done a lot of it is that he's also an amazing designer so he could just mm. do it himself <laughs> also I your strength somehow, is you
0: can fanzine it <laughs> Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: i only ever do it like uh you know i've got to have, do it approach all these things in slightly different ways because i haven't got his ability to just do it um but i'm definitely like that john had done it with um all the xbox opened up a space that oh right i could talk marvel for giving a budget for this now you know right and that's the exciting thing so i can use this and use this for like get the world building and also try to find Slightly different purposes than um, that's the that's the joy of actually seeing like what the X office has done with it and what I'm trying to do and other you know I'm also doing with Warhammer books in a different way but, you know oh. what can you do with a text page and um, and it's like that list of names at the, at the start it's very different at least my in my head its purpose is like a map at the top it's like a map at the front of Lord of the Rings the point is not to sit there and read it all the palpable point is to go oh I wonder what that means or what, what's this place or also maps are for reference you know what i mean yes and it's you know for me that beat was about here is all these characters maybe you'll get to know some of them and uh, but that is also here and it's solid and big and real so um i really i'm really enjoying getting a chance to uh do that and i must admit i've like i've got quite a few ideas of stuff i want to do like both in eternals and maybe in books down the line um mm. yeah it's fun because for me i was always like comics are about juxtaposition of image and you know image and well, actually words words are also pictorial information um so, I've always had a sort of more design element to my comic storytelling. the idea that it's not just glorified storyboards, it's the idea that you know we can throw these stuff around and create an aesthetic effect. You mentioned Singles Club, I remember thinking about those covers, and I was looking at them recently, and then some of those single clubs covers have more words than many comics on, but it seems <laughs> yeah, and I, you know and the, I reread them and it's like, oh my God, that was in it's long ago now that it seems a very different me, obviously. But sure. there's a kind of delight to seeing a younger you doing it and really going for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the idea, uh,
0: yeah.
1: th- and the idea that you can look at it and it looks cool because it's a flyer and, you know, and that's what flyers are like. But if you really absorb it, there's more stuff there for you. And there's, you know what I mean? It's that kind of, it will give back to you. Um,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. And also it's worth revisiting, like, you know, shout out to Logan Dalton for doing this phonogram Uh, deep dive series i you know i've written about i've written about the most recent the the you know phonogram part three i cover you know i'd love folks go read it if you haven't read it yet uh but i've never gone back and done singles club and what i enjoy with reading logan's singles club stuff is not just that he's a really good critic but also he is significantly younger than you or i so it really (laughs) is a testament to how this works for folks who aren't of our generation you know
1: no i agree it's like honestly some of the things, I mean, I just saw Ram V's new book is using, I mean, Ram's not usually younger than we are, like Ram's like thirties, but, um, oh, okay. it's like, but, uh, but he didn't grow up in Britpon. <laughs> right. Uh, so that kind of like, when at the time, uh, people always ask, are oh, you, would, it will date or it's too, um, limited. And I always answered no, cause I don't care. Cause I, right. you know, <laughs> I believe speaking a specific truth is worthwhile, but also, sorry, whose,
0: whose book is this you're saying? Ram?
1: Uh, Ram V has got a new book out. He's actually doing, uh, it's just been announced. I think it's Bolt. I forgot the artist. I think it's the uh, his blue and green artist, uh, whose name I forgot, unfortunately. And its alt cover is a Phonogram Rue Britannia homage cover.
0: Oh, shit. I'm yeah, going to check this out. I was yeah. not aware.
1: Ram told me about it, I think, back when we could, we could still meet in the pubs. So it sounds really exciting. Um, <laughs> but point being, you know, Phonogram, now that it is an established work that exists that people come to later it kind of proves what I kind of me and Jamie always hoped was that yes, we're using a very specific example and we're talking about a very specific scene, but like, this is how people can read into it, what they will, you know, they can see how this is similar to their lives and how it's different to their lives. And that's kind of the hope, you know, part of Phonogram was always that, that your very specific experience is interesting. Like, and I mm. use mine because it was, you know, just cause it was mine, but I wanted to hear other people's, the, the kind of the sadness of Phonogram was like okay, one of the many standards of phonogram, like I, we always wanted to do like an anthology, like of other people's phonogram stories, not about all characters, but about turn your own experiences about music into magic. Tell me about the scene you grew up in. Tell me about like listening to, you know, records, um, like as, as a toddler or whatever. I mean, I always say like the thing that my dad, when he died, he left me a mixtape with some notes he'd written about each song. Uh, and it was made honestly, like, and that of course came from, my mum and dad did mention how me doing has made them think about music in a different way as well. But that whole anecdote of like listening to a mixtape that your dad left you as a, you know, I was a 38 year old man then. Um, that is a pure phonogram story, and, you know. And that yeah. was kind of the, the sort of shame that the metaphor is much wider than we got to, what we got to do with it. Um, and the fact that people are still finding phonogram and getting stuff from it, despite being much younger and no no way connected to any of the scenes that I was involved in, um, kind of speaks to what I hope the the book was about
0: is it's not too late for that to happen is it
1: <laughs> i think me and jamie like i think it's just i think me and jamie more like to do new stuff you know what i mean yeah yeah it's always it's always that i think as then we don't really want to um repeat ourselves sure but, uh, no I understood. Time, it, I... yeah it's just like i always take the level of momentum to do that but because there's always new stuff you want to do as well um
0: yes Speaking of new stuff, uh, the new the new stuff that isn't as new anymore, but that we've never had a chance to talk about till now, I realize is we, we've never covered um, Thunderbolt on the podcast, uh, Peter Cannon Thunderbolt on the podcast, or, um, or Once in Future, really, in any significant way. And, uh, like, uh, Thunderbolt has really become a thing. I, I'm really excited. It feels like a lot of people have – one of the most exciting things for me about Thunderbolt isn't just – that like here's a really good comic i'm that i i really like it's also that you've made critics talk about the act of criticism in ways that have been reflective and useful for us
1: thank you honestly I, i'm really i'm incredibly proud proud of that book i mean it's it sold terribly i believe <laughs> but i think every, it's it feels like um that it found an audience the audience it did find find and the audience it's found afterwards are like really smart very much engaged um in fact, some ways I think about Peter Cannon Thunderbolt is me doing for superhero comics and comics generally what my work often does for other forms of media. I rarely, in fact, you know, until um, until Peter Cannon, I've never done a comic about comics in that way, you know, Cause because mm-hmm. comics against comics is something that bugged me a lot when I was coming in. I was like, why can't comics be about other things? So I did, you know, these comics about, you know, even people, if you just, you know, ideally comics should be, you know, comics can be about anything, but, you know, why, and it always frustrated me about, like, saying. People's reading of Grant Smallson's work always brought it back down to it being about comics, whilst failing to understand he was also talking about capitalism and consumerism and all these yeah. kind of larger things. It's like if Gender, you think it's just comics, yeah. it's you know that it's it's a limitation of what the work is actually doing. Um, so in some ways, like me, it was incredibly good seeing that me bringing the skill set that I apply in phonogram or die or whatever to comics and a certain kind of comics. Ab- obviously, it's it's going to appeal to a certain kind of critic because it's absolutely a piece of criticism. And it's it, sort of got lost in a, I've got got run in a circle then. I don't mean to be sound angry there either. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice. It, it was generally nice to say that, um, that like applying the phonogram skill set to a superhero comic, uh, and at the same time trying to do something with a human heart to it. I think that's kind of, some of the writing around it I'm most touched by is people have analysed, um, you know, just the basic humanity of the character. You know, Peter Cannon is somebody who is archetypal and brittle. But at the same time it's it's just it's like an archetypal brittle person wanted to be shall we say a better human or trying to be human full stop that's the story um mm-hmm. and i've definitely seen some analysis of Pierre cannon like you know in a very real way you know i'm, uh, I'm a queer guy in my early 40s actually no, mid 40s now but I, I was you know early 40s when i think i wrote it uh and uh quite you know I, i'm very much aggressively wanting to question my assumptions and also a guy who's burnt out in superhero comics like I'd, I'd left the marvel universe um because i was just burnt out on working there not in a bad mm-hmm. way but in a, just a kind of my attention works like this and mm-hmm. peter cannon was me saying okay have you you know are you feeling refreshed enough to maybe do it again and in some ways me <laughs> doing eternals has been about proving yes so me doing peter cannon was like yes i actually do like this genre it allows me to do certain things i couldn't do else elsewhere um and yeah. then sort of go forward into it. Yeah. Does, does well, that answer the question? I don't
0: know. Yes, definitely. But also I was gonna say, like, I mean, speaking of that, like, you know, we we know those of us who've who've like really followed, you know, when you've spoken about your own work, it's like we well, you know we know how important getting into Watchmen was to like getting you into comics, mm. period. And and what's always interesting to me for people for whom Watchmen is sort of the gateway is Well, yes, but when did you get into superheroes? Do you know what I mean? Hmm. And so it's—I actually feel like I don't know if I've ever asked you. Like, when did you actually get interested in DC and Marvel's like superheroes?
1: Well, it's tricky. And as a as a proper kid, as in a preteen, I read like the um like the British reprints. You know, like like American comics are really difficult to get hold of in the UK. It was like Mm -hmm. you could only—you could never be sure if they're going to be on the shelves. So I read like a handful of like American comics. Entirely out of context, which is a great drawing. Like it's like I think it's like Uncanny X Men two thousand and eight, two hundred and eight. And you know (laughs) they're in San Francisco, they're fighting Freedom Force. Uh, There's a bit where um, uh, I finally went back and read it. The bit where Rogue's really badly hurt and Spiral has dragged her into Mojo Verse. I think at the end and this really good fight against Nimrod. That was a really good issue. But like (laughs) I had no idea what happened after or before that for like thirty years, (laughs) (laughs) and it's really good. Um, Anyway. So, I sort of fell out of reading comics as a teenager uh, just because they weren't really available um, properly. And that's my usual story. And I got back into Watchmen when I was 21. Um, mm-hmm. The more true story is like one of my best mates, David, he was still buying Marvel superhero comics. My brother was buying 2000 AD. So, you yeah. know, I quite read, re- I quite regularly read bits of them. Like, you know, there's that kind of like, oh, this is interesting. And I'm, I'm somebody who quite likes superheroes. I'm not somebody who um, would define it as the major genre I like. I quite like there's something that absolutely is there in the preteen state. And this is one of the things that led to when I started writing and getting into comics as an adult was I find the Marvel Universe much easier to understand than the DC Universe because I've got that very basic grounding of being read like a bunch of kids. Even if I didn't know how it tied together, I know the shapes. I know the Celestials are these weird space gods. I know Spider-Man lives in New York. I know like uh, I know the Daily Bugle, you know, all that kind of stuff and i simply don't have that for dc you know like i've got i've certainly got some of it now but that yeah. kind of basic understanding of like who what character is important you know or often okay not obviously you know the a-list you know most of the b-list but like i mean i, I was when i was researching this riddler story i'm doing for dc this is eight eight yes thing. i
0: wanted to ask about that that's like <laughs> blew my mind oh my god it's, it's,
1: it's it blew my mind trust me it's incredibly hard work that eight pages was i think it took me almost a month to write and it I remember writing um, the editor Andy Curry at the time. Um, it's like this: this writing this script has definitely become uneconomical. About two weeks ago, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's good. Like people don't like the Riddler, Although, like you know DC fans tend to think the, uh, the Riddler is very much not a serious character worth thinking about. And I was like, what? How how can that be true? You know. Right. So those you know, that kind of like that's, that's a good way of putting it. You know, I said that I knew what the Eternals were in a very basic way by the sh- by by their fan reputation. I didn't. I don't know the DC universe in the same way.
0: Um, but you're totally the guy who's going to write a take on the Riddler that's going to. I mean, I think make people who've never been into him suddenly interested. Like, I that that that's a great fit, you know.
1: Hopefully, I mean, like, honestly, like this is a very weird, formless, playful, silly, silly is a loaded word, but it's very silly. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. also like ridiculously existentialist um, kind of thing. And it's a big burst of me and Jamie. And it's like, if I was ever doing like an ongoing comic at DC, it would have a very different vibe. But it's very much like the the inter... I'm not even sure people understand this eight page comic, because I think it's it's simultaneously very accessible, but its actual point is quite hard to get. But this point is hard enough to get and obvious enough that people realise they're missing something. And at least part of the thinking that went into this story is the Riddler should be hard to figure out. That's the point of the Riddler, you know? And Batman's a genius to be able to deal with him. (laughs) <laughs> you know yeah. uh, so we'll see what people make of it it'll be very pretty jamie's killed
0: yeah i like i i, I it just i like i just found out that this was even going to be a thing so i i'm 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 excited to hear you see you guys together and just like was not expect. so, so, so for folks who don't know like i didn't know until yesterday it's going to be in black batman black and white number five is that it and that'll I be think out so <laughs> And <laughs> um, it'll be out in like the, the April or something like that. So, yes, excited, excited to see that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I also just thought it was interesting that this that you were telling the story about Watchmen to an extent using another Charlton character. Like, there's something now where like if you're going to have a Charlton character, you're going to it's it's like been Watchmenized.
1: It is interesting. I mean, like, that was. So- when I was chatting to Nicky about doing something, he got a list of characters they have the you know they own the rights to, and that's you know Peter Cannons in there. And shall we say, most of it, less of my open anger about certain projects involving Watchmen is in the comic, as in like it's a much more optimistic and it's talk about the work and the the medium generally. But there's definitely like I'm not I'm angry about Doomsday Clock. You know that's the, I, yes I don't
0: thank you I you
1: know I don't often I don't want really to go on a tear about anything because it's definitely because I've not even read it and I won't but there's um i'm very much a watchman fundamentalist <laughs> uh mm-hmm. so i was so much watchman stuff was on my mind anyway especially because why do i you know why do i love it you know why do i think it's interesting why do i think it did what it did and why do i think that doesn't that love is not should not be unquestioned and in which ways watchman is a dead end um so when i saw like peter cannon was that list there was a kind of a sort of almost like a, a raised eyebrow between me and nicky and i went away and kind of came up with what i did um i mean i almost called it peter cannon as in you know c-a-n-o-n uh, to, to really live in. <laughs>
0: um
1: but yeah it felt the idea of like just looking i mean just and i did the research on peter Can- obviously there's not many peter cannon actual comics but like i looked at his broader work, work and the things that was done with him and like you know, my Peter Cannon is very much embedded in my reading of Pete Morsey's work. Uh, and it's, it's some interestingly weird stuff in there. Like, this is this bit where literally he summons a dragon out of his imagination and he never does anything out like it's imagining, like, I don't know, Daredevil suddenly summons like, uh, Godzilla for an issue and then never, you know, no one ever mentions it again. It's like, what, Pete? What hey. are you on? Um, so, <laughs> so at the same time, I was trying to be respectful and, you know, look at the work, I wanted to, discuss that because the thing about you know thunderbolt for all its intrinsic merits what's really interesting about it is you know it's analog you know and what does that mean uh and what does that mean speaking generally because there's the other the other thing i really like about peter Cannon and thunderbolt as a character is uh the estate of pete morse owns it you know it's mm-hmm. the great it, and it, when you compare that to what happened to alan um you know quite compared to alan moore and his relationship with dc uh uh that um, Ozymandias, of course, is more powerful in pop culture in every single way, but its creator has no access to it, or one of its creators has has, no, has nothing to do with it. Whilst even now, yeah. when Pete Morsi's dead, uh, they still own Thunderbolt. So in some ways, Thunderbolt's cleverer than Ozymandias. You know, and I've no huh? idea how, I've no idea how Pete Morsi managed to get away with still owning it. Uh, in the, You know, working in Charlton in the 60s, but he did. And there's something really yeah. appealing on a kind of like political level there with that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Although it's like, it was definitely me, and I love the. You know, it's funny. I, this is the flip, as and I'm somebody who loves the nine panel grid, and I rarely ever write it. You know, I'm somebody who's very influenced by Watchmen, but my influence of Watchmen, much like I expressly the same Peter Cannon, is um, the point of Watchmen is to push the stuff and make something new. The least Watchmen-y thing to do is actually do a nine panel grid, because you know that what you know the, and there's hundreds like Wicked is all about formalism and trying stuff out and structuralism and rereading it and larger all that stuff. And there's bits and there's moments we do we do a tiny bit of Watchmen and there's moments we make it explicit, but they're very, very rare. And for me, it was always about the, the doing the new and kind of like stepping back and really kind of digging into what Watchmen did, who ripped him off, what was going on parallel. I think issue four is kind of like the real part of the argument in that people mm-hmm. very much put Watchmen in the tradition of the American deconstructionist superhero comic, which of course is true in lots of ways. But the other argument is Alan Moore is like a, a hippie, from, uh, you know, near the Midlands in England, uh, born of a working class background and born of the scene that uh, Eddie Campbell describes in Alec How to Be an Artist. You know, he's a, he's an absolutely underground British cartoonist. Uh, and seeing Watchmen as an extrapolation of that rather than part of the American tradition is a completely justified way to look at Watchmen. Like what, in, in other ways, Watchmen is closer to uh, the Alec books than it is to, I don't know, the Avengers. Um, and that was very much part of the argument as well. I don't know. It's I mean, I think it was, was, it Fraction I said this? I think Fraction said to me, but it's like, this is very, Peter Cannon is absolutely the deep cut in my, my um, discography. It's the one the heads will be into. I feel like um, hmm. it's Flex Mentalo, you know, as, Gra- as Flex right. Mentalo is, Gra- uh, is to Grant, uh, Peter right. Cannon is to me,
0: I think. That sounds right. Sounds right. Um, you know, uh, I, with regards to uh, Once the Future, which I, I've, I've really just plowed through, um, I, I, and, and I've been enjoying, I, I like how you are addressing the, there's this idea that people have that like English culture and history is one thing, when it's actually many things, and that um, pointing out the ways in which something that has maybe been approached as being a hegemony is actually built out of disparate cultures um, is an, is a really interesting response to nationalism, and I don't know that I've seen another work take that stance of it. Frankly,
1: thank you. That's interesting. I just like, like yeah. Um, it, it, the weird thing about of what's features, I I think I had the idea well before. I think I had it like two thousand and eight, maybe two thousand nine. The core idea oh. of how could you do how could you do a modern mummy and uh, like try to remove the colonialism from it, use King Arthur, and then immediately. Had the, and, of course, King Arthur is a Welsh, originally a Welsh character, uh, and therefore he would hate Anglo-Saxon Nazis who would raise him up. You know, that kind of, that core cool yeah. irony was there from the beginning. And I just put it on the fire and kept it there. And, of course, it's that when, with the rise of nationalism in the last decade, uh, it's only became ever and ever, ever and ever more relevant. Uh So it's very much like when uh, Boom asked me to do a book uh, with Dan, it was like, oh, this might be the one to develop right now. Um yeah I mean it's definitely that you could that's the thing about the future as timely as it is you could do this story at any point from now to I don't know 400 AD mm. <laughs> you know as in like and every all the way through it's the question about what does britain mean anyway because um I'm going to please any 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 real studies of the concept of british identity don't drop on me too hard for this but you know britain <laughs> you know the britons you know, mean the Welsh. That's what Britons means. And that all that kind of, you know, as in, you know, when King of the Brit- Arthur being king of the Britons means that basically Arthur is king of the Welsh. And all this sort of stuff. And of course, Britain has been lifted from that position and moved into a different position. And that, what Arthur meant in different periods. And this is where the research was fascinating. It's like, you know, um, Arthur being seen very much as a radical figure. That's like still about 1100, 1200. He was seen as like a Welsh uh, nationalist figure and something to be kind of like cracked down upon. And then you get sort of hmm. you stop. Then you get the French sort of um, with the uh, you get the French romances that changes it. And these different strands and the idea that Arthur had been created that speaks to the, the fears and hopes of the time was really appealing, you know. And that's kind of yeah. what, you know, I you know that's what wants the future. It's also it's both commenting on and it's also doing.
0: <laughs> well, and, you know, and um, as as Americans, especially through things like the seventeen, you know, like the like, as Americans are like having to re-examine our history in a really in a way that is like you know causing in contribute like people are having v- actual violent responses to America coming to terms with history uh, I think there's uh, I don't want people to think this is like just a, a British comic like the 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 challenges that you're tackling in it are things that other cultures uh need to engage with also
1: no I definitely think so I mean that's kind of what my- once again, we return to phonogram. We kind of hope that the specifics of this situation is, are interesting, but also applicable further. And people will think, okay, how does my own country's, uh, you know, national history and national myths hold up to this? Um, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I just saw, uh, I saw something on Twitter. It seems like a lot of like young, and by young people, I mean like kids in school today. Like they don't believe that Helen Keller was a real person. She sort of exists in their mind like a Paul Bunyan type thing, and like thinking about what happens when you're actually even mythologizing real people for whom we know actually existed and like what she was a socialist by the way um and uh like what how things are being mythologized that are like literally actually history
1: yes very much so and like the, the the liminal space between the two and like uh i mean you just you think about like Maybe it's less true now, but you talk about, like, say, Catherine the Great. What's the first thing people will say about her? Probably that completely fake story about how she got killed. Yeah. You know? uh, like, and that people have been slandering and warping the stories of historical figures for as long as anyone's been writing stuff down. Yeah, um, I mean,
0: Shakespeare is like, I, I'm the first person to be like, I actually don't know anything about British history of that time because I literally only know the Shakespearean propaganda and like <laughs> other playwrights propaganda that were from the period. That's it.
1: I mean, like, this is one of the fun things. Like, you, you know, King Lear was actually originally a mythological um, uh, figure, a Britonic mythological figure about 600 AD. No. Like, King, King Lear's a very old myth. Uh, I got this from the Wands of Future research. Um, like, he's a really very, very old myth. And of course, thanks to Shakespeare, we don't know he's a myth anymore. We know, right. he, all we know is, that, all we know is a literary figure. And that's fascinating, because that's something that rarely, yeah. and it makes you think about, I mean, Tolkien thought this about Beowulf, Tolkien thought Beowulf was, he sort of, he wrote his own idea of what a folkloric proto Beowulf would be like. Um, and that kind of the idea that King Lear has ascended from, not ascended or descended, let's say changed. He's changed from myth to literature due to the one work of art, uh, you know, by, uh, by some, some dude from Stratford. Uh, and that's (laughs) fascinating. Um, and that's like, he, that's almost like the, I wouldn't say quite the opposite of, of a historical figure becoming more fictional. Um, but it's certainly an interesting parallel
0: thing. It, I, I don't remember. Were you raised Catholic or Protestant?
1: I'm Catholic. Catholic. I, so, I was raised Catholic.
0: Right. Raised Catholic. Yeah. I was literally having a conversation in the car yesterday with my husband, who was also raised Catholic, about which saints are people and which like, were completely mythological and like how the church has changed its relationship to those notions. like. Sometimes it's like holy crap, you know, like yeah, Saint Francis was actually a real person, and like Saint George was, you know, not so much. Like, is determining uh, like, who are these real figures, and it is crazy that how much we know about certain people who, like, like they didn't do things that's reported, but like did it? They did. They did exist. Like, it's it's um, how, how humans have like mushed together. Uh, mythology and people is uh, from ex- extreme distant past.
1: Yeah. And I always find, I'm somebody who's like addicted to research. I'm always twitchy around um, uh, faking stuff. Like when I'm writing historical figures, I'm like, I I justify writing this. And even like in a book like Uber, and like, I had a, one of the Nazi, uh, one of like the German Wehrmacht generals commit suicide, and, I, and he didn't commit suicide in real life. And I was like, "Can I? Am I ethically allowed?" And that's with a fucking Nazi, je- you know. That's a Nazi <laughs> person, and I worry about it. Then, in the end, I said, "Yes, it was something that they did a lot." But like, yeah. that's one reason why stuff like Die or Wickdiv, There's always, like, in Die especially, the um, you have all these historical figures like you know H.G. Wells and the mm-hmm. the Brontes. But like, they explicitly they explicitly say they're echoes. They're not really right. the people. They're some kind of fictional ghost of them, essentially that has tr- element of truth or not, and that gives me the inch i need to do stuff with them because like because uh, the idea of writing about the kind of the fictional ghosts of people is, is simultaneously what we're both talking about now but also gives me the intellectual freedom to have that and do that to them
0: speaking of die i you know, I think I, I've said I had a whole episode of my podcast about how people are playing RPG games now during COVID because it's a it's a hobby that, as much as it's like way better in person for most of us, it does translate to being a thing that can be done online. And doing it online has expanded the audience of people able to participate in it, uh, as well as kind of the, the as well as you know the people who are um, able to play it, as well as like people's interest in learning it in the first place because it is a hobby that you can do from home. How do you feel like COVID, has COVID impacted how Die as an RPG has been played by people and its dissemination?
1: Well, we've certainly got better playtesting for socially distanced games now, <laughs> in that mm. way. As in, like, I hadn't, before, uh, like, before the lockdown, I had not played Die at all myself via, uh, you know, distanced and uh, streaming. And afterwards, like, I, I finished the entire Die campaign I've ran, uh, so we went through, like, 35 sessions about, like, Maybe 30 of them, I think, were, like, distance. And, I, and on a personal level, I've played a lot of, like, vid, RPGs have been my main hobby during the last year and a half. Uh, even without lockdown, it would have been. But with lockdown, doubly so. Um, it's put different pressures on different bits of the playtesting. It's one of the interesting things. I, I t- my gut feeling, I tend to think most narrative games tend to do better socially distanced than a more traditional, crunchy game.
0: Because mm. the mechanics
1: slow down a lot on level oh, twenty. Yeah. Well, since there's less roles in most narrative games, it means you can play it and worry about it less. I mean, a lot of it's taught me to be a better GM on streaming because it's like, it's stuff like if you're playing a game, it's like running a Zoom track. You've got to explicitly say, ask individual people. You don't say, is anyone getting any ideas? Because then everyone just shuts up and they try to speak over each other. So you say, hey, Chrissy, what are you doing now? You know, you've got to go, gu- mm. you know, the, the, that's the thing about playing online. You've got to guide it more in terms of who's talking when. And, and as if you're actually the person facilitating, you've got to be there, Be aware of who's spoken of. Uh, e- even more so than an usual game, because you're in control of it more. But it's been interesting. And a lot of people seem to have played it. This is nice. I mean, there's quite a busy, there's a active Discord of Die. Um, I did a, another release of Rules just for Christmas, of, like finally getting like a full version of the Master in. And mm. people seem to like it, which is nice. It's... um. It's something I'm quite proud you know, I'm proud of it in that way. And uh, I'm hoping I'll do a Kickstarter this year. I don't know for sure. Hopefully I'll finish the full release of whatever and we'll work out what to do with it. Um,
0: I really enjoyed the game that we play. One of the things that I didn't realize I'd be doing until I began playing was, oh, right, you're creating a character and your character creates a character. Yeah. <laughs> and character creation is the most fun part of the game for a lot of us. So you've built an RPG where we get to do the cool thing twice
1: it isn't like it's that kind of the 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 nesting the russian nesting doll of die is interesting you know that kind of we're going to generate a real world person and that real world person's going to make character and uh it's it's a game that's always about the liminality between why do we play games so we're making a person then why did that person make their choices um and one of the things like especially with the campaign but i think when i run die it's a lot about this end as well is that character generation also never really ends like one Mm -hmm. of the main things i do in die is that um this is the problem actually, because if you're playing in a fantasy game and you're in a fantasy world you're walking around, that world becomes more real than your actual character's life back home. So in other words, the, in, like in a campaign, that random goblin you became friends with in the first session would be more of a real person than your character's parents because they have not been right. in the fantasy world. So one of the ways that I do, I'm always, that part of the actual, especially the full system, is that you're always asking questions about the real world. You know, you're always asking, so tell me about what your favourite food was. Tell me about your, the last time you saw your mum. Tell me about you know that kind of and so and then you fold that back into the fantasy world, but that kind of like it's, there's a whole chapter here called basically a um, character generation never ends, and that's kind of one of the the cool things it does because it's especially the like people are interesting. And, you know, I love it. And dun- I mean dungeons are always metaphorical because dungeons are always what's inside people. You know you, you're going into the primal cave. I mean D and D traditionally te- treats dungeons like the Death Star on Star Wars, as in you go in there and you get stuff and you blow it up. Whilst um, die, what definitely something I am trying to do is uh, treating dungeons like you treat the cave on Dagabar in uh, Empire. The idea this is a play, this is a, definitely a place you go to and you face a peril and you face something, but you are probably the bad guy. You know, this is really about your own <laughs> emotional messiness. Um, but yeah, I am glad you enjoyed it. You know, uh, I hope you get to play it again.
0: Yeah, I, I, I have to get on the Discord. I'm, I would, I would be curious to see what how folks are talking about their games right now. Um, but yeah, like just from a strict mechanic standpoint, I think building it that way is amazing. And I, I haven't, the idea of reminding people to keep coming up with these aspects of their real world character is, yeah. is a cool one for keeping us engaged through that.
1: There's a really minor rule threw in the campaign, which I don't, I haven't actually put in the public rules yet, but it's, um, I just want to basically encourage people to do flashbacks to reality. And it's, it's as basic as describe a flashback to an event in the real world that is relevant to what's about to happen and you get an advantage on whatever happens. So you basically get, you know, it's the equivalent of getting plus one to hit if you tell me something like, imagine, I'm a t- you know, the, 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 the basic example would be a time you win an argument, uh, you, you face down a bully at Skull, and then, you, you know, you're facing down a monster in the world of die, and you get plus one to hit, or the equivalent of that. But the, the idea of actually slightly, soft, softly mechanising and encouraging players to do it. And, you know, once you've started, like, doing it just to get that plus one they start doing it as part of their tool set yeah uh, like that's that's definitely kind of the what i would like to work out ways to do more of without turning into just you know you, you don't want to make it just people like flashing back you, you want people the point is to encourage, it's like a it's a reward for people doing it rather than just uh something that's meant to be power against
0: yeah i uh Anything that moves things from just being about beating people with an axe to like storytelling and character is like part of like that's why I'm, what that's what I'm interested in. You've just given a DM an incentive to make the game be more like how I want it to be. So hooray. <laughs> um, I, I think that's fabulous. And like when 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 I'm when I'm you know, when I'm playing D D, like the less often we have to roll, and the more often things are character driven or any other game really, like the better I'm feeling about it. Um, there, you know, I'm, I'm playing right now. There's a, a new RPG that my, one of my friends did the art for or created called uh, Still Fleet, which they describe as being tax punk, but Ooh. that's another story. Um, and they, and in order to incentivize, you know, characters making character choices that aren't just based on what will help us win, but are also based on like the the way the character thinks is they've built in an incentive for your character to act like their most self possible cool. rather than just like the most strategic thing they could choose to do. That's nice.
1: There's always like, um, say, I've got more, I've got various designs I play around with and I suspect that, say, if, depending how tired I am when I get off this and my various other work, there's like a one page RPG I want to write. Uh, Cause I've got an itch IO page now. So where my indie Ooh. RPGs are, I did, um, i did an rpg based around the british tv show come dine with me which is about a competitive d- dinner party show uh which, <laughs> like that was our lock all lockdown was but we watched like hundreds of episodes of this for like the first half of lockdown like six like six seven months we watched so many and i sat there and i eventually mechanized it in my head i said this is the structure <laughs> and um you know i wrote the game and it plays it's actually very funny it's like uh, say, like it's just it's a like it's just a comedy game and you basically have to say so you generate the people doing the competitive dinner parties and then i'm sorry there's a there's a video of me playing with like chrissy and al yearing and various people like that lob, lob that in the show notes because it's genuinely quite a delight to watch because it's so dumb um but there's another <laughs> there's a game sign i'm thinking it's really short i should try to write it up but my idea is one thing i've been doing this year is socially distance walks and i mean by which i mean not with anyone like I put on my headphones and I call a friend and they go yes. for a walk and I go for a walk. Mm-hmm. So we're just walking and talking. And the idea of the game, I want I want to basically a narrative of two people who are sitting in the pub together and they're telling each other a story of a long journey they went on. And they also so and the game is basically you use stuff you're walking past as prompts to your answers. Like in other words, like if you so that was someone said. So uh, what got you know there'll be slightly more structure on this, but like okay, so what a uh, so what the uh, what happened next on your journey? Uh, and then you look to the right, and you see a burnt down tree or some you know knocked down tree, and it's like when well, I came, you know, I came and conquered the lands of the Ents, and the great Ent King had fallen, and then you know, and you build like that. So you basically just use prompts in the real world to sort of describe, you know, tell a story to the other person, and vice versa. And of course, that person never knows until like the game's over what what inspires stuff. So like it's sort of an idea, of this just a way to sort of mecha like. Add some entertainment to a, a walk in a different way, but also kind of like it's kind of a game about how you can reimagine your environment because we're all very trapped right And the idea of like how you can add by using fantasy applied to the world you walk through can sort of free yourself in that way. Um, and there's a few little mechanic things I want to do in terms of questions, but like it should, I just think I should write it up quite quickly and knob it out because it's kind of like, um, yeah, but it's like I'm, I'm really into game mechanics at the moment, it's kind of very much my hobby.
0: Do you think that that's thing which is influencing how you're writing the Eternals at all as well?
1: I think so a bit. Like, um, the thing is like, you mentioned like, not liking rolling. Honestly, I quite like rolling, but I only like rolling when it's meaningful in terms of mm. like, if a game is about like social interaction, I'm quite into, okay, let's make a roll and it's mechanized in interesting ways. And this will change the fiction in meaningful ways. As I said, I'm quite into dice as a device, like the power by the apocalypse games and all those sort of things. Um, so, and the interesting about that as a genre is they're all about mechanising genre. By which I mean, like, you've got something like Dungeon World, just basically a poem about D&D. So it's D&D boiled down to its bare essentials. Um, but there is an amazing, oh my God, oh no, I've just forgot its name. Like, there is a te- telenovela game, uh, Passioners della Passions, which is basically uh, an object about playing in a telenovela. So it's all so opera, It's all drama, It's all big emotions. It's beautifully designed, and it's got moves like, um, for example, it's like w- when you accuse someone of lying, or you you, you know there's, you're lying and this is the truth. Uh, and it's various things that f- feed into the role. Uh, like you get a bonus if there's an audience, for example. So in other words, your confrontations are more likely to win if you're doing it in front of a big crowd because that's a genre element uh you've got evidence there's a plus but that's minor but if you roll like if you roll well in other words you get the full success one of the options you can choose is the accusation is true even if the audience as in the game has defined it false previously so for example you can say Mm -hmm. i know you are lying because you were you were with um you were with my wife last night and then you roll well that's true that fiction has changed so that person's character is revealed or even more so like you are you are my secret brother lost when we were you know lost when we were children and then you roll well. And, no, no, that's true now. And you know what I mean? That's in that kind of uh, the cascading nature of that sort of soap opera plotting has been absolutely mechanised. So as a hobby for me as a writer, as a writer of fiction, a lot of what game design is trying to make, force me to think of is what are, the, what are the actual, what decisions are we making in genre fiction? And if I truly understand those decisions and those elements, I can turn them into a mechanic. You know, a mechanic is basically a machine for doing what I, my brain does. Um, and that's kind of where I am a bit in terms of I'm trying to work out, okay, I can write a story. I've done this a lot. What actually is a story? Um, and that kind of thinking behind everything ties in.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, so in terms of the game design, probably it's like, you know, it's not enough, it's not enough for me anymore to just write a, a story. I've got to be able to teach you how to write a story <laughs> and, like, and give, you, give you the tool that allows you to create this act of magic. Like give, basically giving people magic wands. That's how I see game design as in like here's a device and this will help you see the magic and like for me RPGs are very uh, fundamentally like the power of freeing people from the idea that c- culture is something that has, be- has to be given to them like and the idea that um I mean a, I interviewed uh Alex sorry the interview's, it's slightly late here now so my brain's frying the designer of an amazing game called for the queen and she basically argues that um thing that rpgs show that human creativity is infinite and that you you can sit down with a table of people and you can make a make a world between you with a few you know with a few mechanics and guidelines and it just emerges and you've done this wonderful act of magic as in the idea that our creativity is infinite is something that i think is fundamentally like um an idea that really sort of frees the human spirit in lots of ways and your agency there and the power there um but yeah i mean all that but i did say it thematically is very much in eternals and of course, the methodical nature of my thinking in some of this stuff is definitely in eternals i mean i think that's kind of comes from die um
0: mm.
1: and to be honest Wicked as well
0: uh yeah well die is definitely kicking butt and like giving me all the feelings and like just is a really intense emotional experience for everyone it was just not a not a surprise not a surprise <laughs> at all
1: yes it really is it's like um it's I'm writing the, um, I'm about to start writing issue 18 next week. And it's obviously issue 20 is probably the last one. Uh, so like, I'm going- Oh, wait, the that's
0: difficult... the last issue of the comic you're saying, issue 20.
1: Yes, it's, all uh, we'll the 20 issue series. Uh, that's the, um, that's the plan. Oh, god, It's a 20-sided dice. Well, We're kind of uh, leading into it.
0: Just a uh, flag. I'm reading it in trade right now. So I'm uh, only, I'm- so just but, but but keep but please proceed
1: as to say you are up to date as in 16 hasn't come out yet uh the comic comes back in may so um you know you're safe like i'm not good t- but like you know issue 15 was a big melodramatic heartbreaking melodramatic's the wrong word but you know it's the big stage epic and if you yeah. um and the final arc is very much down into the heart of people uh and digging into the cast um and it's bleak you know i think talk about like covid influence so much like, especially Eternals and Die are just bleak books. Um, I mean, you get like at least Wars of Future has a level of anger that carries you through. Like, I think one thing like, where have you read up to the Future?
0: Uh, whatever is the most recent comiXology. Uh, in
1: comicsology. All right. Which case, like you know, the end of the second arc made it clear that there was a, the political element is coming back in quite strongly, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, and that continues. And it gets, I mean, the issue what's just going to press is probably the most political it's got. And it's very much me in like 2000 AD pop, uh, pop anger mode, I guess. Uh, at least that's the energy. But the kind of the dourness of die is kind of I um, suspect close to how I really feel right now. That's yeah,
0: depressing. I yeah, I mean, I, but also anger is like a way that a lot of us choose to process grief too. Mm, um, true, particularly I think as activists. Um, yeah, I, I actually, I have a question from um, Steve Atwell that this is a good segue into, which was, with Once in Future, do you think that there's links between the stories that the foundational mythology of particular countries and the political and national ideologies is that, that they hold, like, taking from those?
1: I think that's such a big question and would not wish to generalise. You know what I mean? Fair enough. Like, yeah, especially because yeah. the idea of continuity and... Uh, actually, posh because I wouldn't want to generalise, posh because I just don't know. I don't know. I one of the thing, I've got several really big books on the history, history of nationalism that I want, like literally one about the size of my torso, and having, it's one of those areas <laughs> I wanted to research, and I have not get around to doing it properly. Like um, no worries, but no, it's like, like ask me next year, and I'm will a better answer. It's interesting, especially That's because wild. the idea of I mean nationalism was a word that was invented in the 19th century. You know, the idea of con- you know the idea of countries as we know it did not exist, and the idea if we think of countries the way we do think of countries. In historically speaking that's uh, that's an error you know it's a bit like there's all sorts of ideas which we just accept like cla- you know you know like class is a good example like anytime i argue with like a, a classical um not argue talk to a classical historian that all because i'm always putting in a class struggle reading <laughs> yes <laughs> and then you know and they're much more interested in how they self-identified and that's not exactly you know and the evidence for that is it just isn't there um so in terms of like modern national identity built because if you look at fascism, fascism is about, okay, one of the things fascism does is patch together a completely fictitious completely fictitious past. Uh, so yeah. those myths, you know, they even, no matter what those myths said, the fascists will turn them into something else. Um, and this is kind of, this, this is the reason why I've never, I always had trouble defining myself as a fantasy writer, despite clearly being a fantasy writer, was that, <laughs> you know, fantasy is a genre which tends to say the past was better than the future, you know, or well, the past is definitely better than the present. Uh, and it's about the idea of um, it's a small C conservative genre um, and it doesn't have to be obviously there's long nope. we can all list off enormous creators who have kicked against that um, Yeah. but it really in some level that's the default <laughs> mm. uh, and that you know in the same way that romanticism blends into fascism quite well uh, fantasy blends into that kind of um, ideas too and that troubles me which is why I like interrogating him.
0: yeah yeah, like you know, even even fantasy authors who are very much self-identified as like radicals still struggle with this cropping up in ways in their work. So I, mm. I hear that. So, well,
1: so, I, like I, I just thought the question completely. <laughs> no, it's I,
0: it's it, this is this is perfect in, engagement. It's funny. I feel like we don't. I don't know if we on this podcast have ever talked to you specifically about music that's happening now, but like, what has been your, what is uh, a a COVID era pick that you've had musically that you would think folks should check out? It doesn't have to be contemporary, but it certainly can be.
1: Right. So it's like my listening this year, actually, I think it's 179. uh, My uh, newsletter, I actually did my tracks of the year last year. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, That was my tracks of the year post and last year has not been a major year for new music. Like I've listened to a lot of stuff, but in terms of like really keeping up, I haven't been. Um, and if this year has also been a year when I've dug into, you know, I mentioned the Led Zeppelin. I haven't gone to Led Zeppelin, but I've been digging into stuff like, okay, why on earth did I never listen properly to Black Sabbath? You know, I'm a, Mid- <gasps> yes! I'm a, Mid- I'm a Midlander. You know, like why on earth? Yeah. They, like, and it's, it's about, they are literally the most Midlands band of all time. And I was a metalhead. You know, I was a metalhead before as an indie kid. Why did I never really explore Black Sabbath? And one of the podcasts I listened to had a very big long section. i talking about like all the Aussie stuff, and I just sat and listened to all that. And it was, you know, it was good. It was just really interesting. You know, getting into that a band with that that length of stuff was really an interesting period. My track of the year, I was really into of Montreal's uh, fun album. Um, you are fun. It was called, uh, which is just really nice to hear them having a nice time. You Know especially you know those of us who've on Montreal, you know, go back to um, oh, I forgot the name, H- uh, Hissing Four and You Are the Destroyer. They're kind of like They're bleak, utterly breakdown mess of an album, uh, and to hear them in being in a much better place was something that really I got strength from. Um, you know, because like as I said, all of us who have been in truly dark places, the idea that someone could be feeling better is nice, huh? Yeah, uh, I mean, the flip is like I was really into like, um. Oh the weird thing is the music it stopped like Poppy's um uh I disagree was a record I obsessed over like just before covid and it was just really nihilistic and gleeful and playful with it and just like stuff that was gleeful and playful and nihilistic was a lot harder to listen to mm. <laughs> you know what i mean
0: yeah
1: um, yeah but yeah it's been interesting
0: i i'm so excited about you getting into into black sabbath um because they're one of the greatest bands ever, and there's so much politics that's happening in it. I just have to share a story. I um I was in the position where uh, a, a colleague of mine who moved to the U.S. in recent years and so grew up with a very different music history than us. Um, we were at this club, and this band starts covering Black Sabbath, and I like lose my mind about how excited I am. And she's like, "Oh, I don't know about this." And so I told her the story of how Tony Iommi experiencing an industrial accident is why we have the drop detuning and why metal became a thing. And she looks at me and says, that's so beautiful. The music of working people will always, will always find a way to be expressed.
1: <laughs> awesome.
0: And it was just like, yeah, like we, like there's heavy metal is intrinsically coming from industrial worker experience and like class yeah. is just built into it. And we wouldn't have the drop D without that that is fascinating anywho um yeah. <laughs> well thank you for joining us i uh i really appreciate you. it I, I always end the show asking people where can our listeners find your folks online so i'll say that here as well
1: uh my name kieran Gillen. the best place i'm on twitter though i'm not actually on twitter as much anymore uh the the best way to generally stay on update with me is my uh mailing list which is on substack kierangillan.substack.com and I mail like every week or two, and it's about what work I've got coming out, but it's also about random thoughts from my head, downloaded at length. At length being the key phrase there, <laughs> uh, and it's but you know, and it, hopefully there's at least three good jokes.
0: I really enjoy it, so I definitely suggest folks get on the Substack, and you do tweet enough to be worth following on Twitter. So you, you know, f- folks. You're on no obligation to tweet as much as I do, which, by the way, is at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. But um, you're on Twitter enough to be worth following, certainly, and I do enjoy your account there. But yeah, that newsletter is awesome. Um, And so to our listeners, uh, Graphic Policy Radio continues to march forward on our podcast. Uh, As you may have noticed, I've also been releasing episodes of my new Deep Space Nine podcast called Deep Space Dive which we will be shifting to have on its own RSS feed so that the comics people and the Trek people don't have to listen to both of them if they don't want to. But I certainly (laughs) invite you to, if you're interested in Deep Space Nine, the most political of all the Star Treks, and graphicpolicy.com for all your comics, news, and reviews. As we like to say, keep it geeky.